Ashes to Ashes, a podcast about the other 80s. Today's episode is about the Joy Division album, Closer. First, Joy Division in under a minute. Forming in Manchester in the wake of British punk, Joy Division rose in the local music scene on the strength of their intense life presence and growing quality of their originals. They were Peter Hook on bass, Stephen Morris on drums, Ian Curtis on vocals and Bernard Sommer on guitar. A self-financed EP and TV appearance later, they were getting mentioned in dispatches at such national-level magazines as Sounds and the NME. Early sessions for major label RCA were shelved, but most of the material would later surface on their debut album Unknown Pleasures for the newly created artist-led Factory Records. It was a critical and popular success, and more extensive touring followed in 1979. Poised for a North American tour, Ian Curtis took his own life, bringing the band's career to an end. The final album recorded with him, Closer, was released in July of 1980. So we fired up the old Zoom, and I asked Glenn, how did you find out about Joy Division? Well, it could have been through graffiti on a toilet wall (laughs) at the Western Australian Institute of Technology. Um, Or it could have been through the weight newspaper, Grok, Uh, I used to write record reviews for Grok and I noticed that Joy Division were getting a lot of attention and a lot of press and also back in those days toilet walls were a great source of information (laughs) you would see things like Nick the Stripper release the bats yeah yeah and Joy Division (laughs) playlists playlists on toilet walls and I think that suggests how important music was to our generation yeah I recall reading an article about Joy Division in Rolling Stone magazine. And Rolling Stone in the early 80s was basically a mainstream publication. Yeah, focused. yeah. that's why I ho- avoided it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, you would have uh, covers with people like Dylan, Lennon, The Stones, mm. as well as Billy Joel and other sort of top yeah. 40 acts. But Rolling Stone used to be in the Waite Library Mm. and uh, between classes, you know, I would listen to music because they had a great setup where uh, they would play albums, which you could listen to on headphones and there were magazines in the library. Anyway, I picked up an edition of Rolling Stone dated Mm -hmm. May 1981. And there was an article by a guy called Michael Gilmore. And the article was about the independent post-punk scene in the UK generally. So it was, uh, I remember the graphic was a map of the UK and it had, um, it identified 
locations of activity right. and Manchester was circled. Uh -huh. And uh, so the article spoke about uh, public image and various other bands. And then the last part of it was devoted to Joy Division. What about you? How did you come across uh, Joy Division, Peter? Okay, well, you said Rolling Stone and uh, I thought, yeah, but then I thought of my own experience and I thought, well, I, <laughs> I don't really have anything better than that because my first exposure to Joy Division that I knew of was Countdown. Um, in May, they ran at least part of the Lovell Terrace Park clip, and Molly Meldrum, you know, said he, you know, sadly took his own life, and this is the song um, that they have out. I went out because I, I just that snippet of it was enough for me to want the single, so I went and bought the single. I still have a little, uh, not a picture disc, a um, uh, picture sleeve. Yeah. So it was counter. <laughs> I also recall is just how different they sounded compared to what was going on, not so much in the independent scene, because um, at this time, I think there were mm -hmm. a number of things that were conspiring mm -hmm. to make this band important for me. You know, this body of philosophy that was popular when I was a student and this music it might not have been anything, but, you know, the fact that there was this sort of vocabulary okay. uh, that was common, I, I found as an extra spur to find out more about them. But also just sonically, it was so different from what was popular, like Australian Crawl, um, Mondo Rock, Cold mm -hmm. Chisel, these 80s Oz bands, which were really popular amongst students. I just wow. couldn't, I couldn't get into them. Jeez. You know, um, there is a seriousness, seriousness of intent. Yeah. Uh, I think, as you mentioned, there's a kind of literary approach to, to writing songs that uh -huh. you find in the work of Lou Reed, for example. To me, that didn't stand out so much because I was already listening to that sort of English, darker sort of stuff at the time anyway. I just thought they, they stood out from that because the, the strength of their sound and the force of it and the, the moods and the emotions, etc., uh, pushed them further ahead than the people around them, including The Cure, including Susie and the Banshees and the birthday party and all those other people. And what you hear through any Joy Division um, thing is this this backing that, that takes a little while to kind of decode, to understand where it's coming from. It doesn't sound like a rock band playing, you know, that, that started out playing Johnny Be Good you know, as an encore or anything like that. It sounds like people who have found a particular um, tonal voice and they've stuck to that. And in the middle of that, you've got strange lead vocal because it's, it's kind of, on the one hand, it's kind of droning and murmuring and the other hand, it's really charismatic. And it's hard to always, you know, quite work out how those two can be in one voice. The thing that I found really impressive was the sense of atmosphere and tone that I got from the songs. And I did hear... Um, unknown Pleasures first. Yeah, but before we talk about the individual tracks, I'm kind of intrigued about what you had to say about um, their mm -hmm. modal sound. So perhaps if you could sort of explain that, because I'm not really sure I understand it. Okay. Modal music can be a very complex topic, but if you can imagine a musical keyboard, I can start you off. Pick a key, let's say D. Play up to the next D using only the white keys. 
That's the Dorian mode. So what? Well, it's kind of like D minor, but if you play the tonic chord and follow up with a fourth chord, it's a G major, not a minor, as you might expect in the modern key system. Also, if you play it that way, you miss the C sharp when you went to the fifth. Here's a well-known example. That's in the Dorian mode, but if I play it in D minor... Okay, so that's just one mode. Now imagine starting at any other white key and seeing what the scale reveals. Phrygian is E minor with a B diminished for a fifth. Mixolydian is G major with an F natural, that's very rock music, and so on. Phrygian, Lydian, Mixolydian, if that's all Greek to you, it should be. The medieval scholars who gave them these names were doing so in the belief that they were carrying on the work of the ancient Greeks. That's all that is. So how did Joy Division come to use them? Well, they were a jamming band, and they probably just stumbled on them and thought they sounded good. The modes had been back in the neighbourhood since the 1960s with the folk and early music revivals. A lot of Christmas carols are modal. The Stooges' song, We Will Fall, is modal. Best of all, for Joy Division's purposes, depending on the mode, anything you play along with anything someone else is playing will pretty much work. Modes are a gift to jammers. Mostly. The Locrian takes a bit of thought, but the Dorian works every time. Now, please enjoy our little example tune in a more contemporary setting. So we should get on to talking about uh, the album. Okay, so let's start with the first track, uh, Atrocity Exhibition.
I can't remember who, and I wish I could, but someone said that was the 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 least welcoming opening track in all of history, even though he's saying this is the way step inside. <laughs> yes. This is the this is the first song I heard off this album. I didn't know it was the first song because I heard it on the radio. But it was kind of played over my shoulder and I, I within seconds, like hearing that jackhammer, hearing that sort of what turned out to be a, a very heavily treated guitar and that somber, mournful, but also really cold vocal, um, the kind of things they were describing. I, I was hooked by the that first verse. Yeah, for me, it's interesting. I really didn't listen to the mm -hmm. lyrics very carefully mm. back in the day. It wasn't until years later that I paid close attention to what yeah. Curtis was singing. And yeah. Yeah. Well, whatever it was and whatever uh, origins it had, it was certainly arresting. Um, just a couple of things that I picked up from Hook's book. Uh, apparently, um, Bernard Sumner is playing bass on the Atrocity right. exhibition. And, and, playing guitar. Yeah, and the guitar um, sound really pissed Hook off because he thought he was, <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, he thought he was being... He was hero. really depressed by it because he thought, because um, Unknown Pleasures didn't sound like the Sex Pistols as, as Hooky wanted. Uh, he thought, oh my God, we're going through this again where he's put it through, his his, his jokey term was a, you know, the Marshall Time Waster pedal. Um, <laughs> and... Hook also was, uh, decades later, said um, uh, he might have he, he thought, he might have been disappointed with the sound, but he just wasn't ready for it. He wasn't sophisticated enough for it. That's right. And, at, he, at several, and he grew into that. Yeah, at several points in the book, he actually thanks Martin Hannett. He said, mm -hmm. you know, he gave us records for eternity. And for that, I, yeah. I'm uh, totally grateful. And he's, you know, another point he says... Uh, he was right, I was wrong. But what yeah. he didn't like was the way in which the guitar was uh, treated. Just, it, yeah, it, it, warped. Yeah, it doesn't even sound like a guitar. It just it, no, it, it has this yeah. sort of, it's like an industrial sound effect. Um, is the is the jackhammer a guitar? I, I, I've gone in and out of thinking that. I've got no idea. I mean, what it I... It sounds like a jackhammer. It really sounds like a jackhammer. Yeah. But um, the other thing is, uh, I, I can't remember which live performance, sorry to interrupt, but the um, there's one where they play that, and I, I don't know if it's if they change instruments for it, but you can hear the guitar being played with the chords as it was probably recorded. Yeah, yeah. Of Atrocity Exhibition, and it sounds more like a rock song. What Martin Hennett did was, and we should have a discussion maybe at some point here about what Hennett did. In terms of world building, but the uh, that is one of the elements, musical elements, uh, the audio elements of Atrocity Exhibition as the first track of the of an album. Um, that is that proves so arresting to the attention, because it 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 starts out with that cold, unchanging tom tom beat, and you get that scratchy, scrapey what once was a guitar and you get a jackhammer sound and you get the the bass again very modally sort of um groaning around and then you get Curtis going in there it's a really icy cold um backdrop now there'd been approaches at this by bands like the Gang of Four who'd really chilled down their sound and made it kind of 
kind of like the the anti-young marble giants because there was no warmth intentionally no warmth at all in it but this is taking it to a completely different level where it's almost cinematic it's almost like a a sound effect in a film exactly and it's very unsettling but at the same time intriguing it's like a mm. it, it it's not exactly a warm invitation but it's an invitation to yes, enter this yeah. you know this exhibition Den this this strange yeah uh, den of uh, yeah horror mm. well let's have a listen to isolation Now you could put the vocal way out in front with a big, happy-sounding vocalist, and you could take that to Eurovision. <laughs> it just moves. There's there's something incredibly energetic about the way in which that song uh, just creates this sort of sense of drive. And then you've got that great, you sort of I think it's it's the bass, the bass riff that Peter yeah. is playing on that, you know, which is just it just won't let up. Insistent but absolutely in the pocket. Brilliant. And yet we're talking about something that could be a Eurodisco song. Yeah. I and love the contradiction in that. There is. Uh it, it's almost this um you know, it reminded me a little bit of the kind of Brecht Vile approach to songwriting. Mm-hmm where you have that tension or that disparity between what a song is about and what a song sounds like. Mm-hmm. And there's that kind of contradiction that leaves the listener feeling a little unsettled because I, you know, the, the vocals are buried and I never had the lyrics, um, you know, to look at back in the eighties. Um, so I, certain phrases would jump out at me, like, you know, carefully watched for a reason. Mm-hmm. Once again, going back over them, there, you know, these, uh, you know, this is a song written by someone who is, yeah, um, you know, yeah. well, clearly, I mean, you, you hear, you know, well, why is he carefully watched for a re- reason? Who is watching mm. him? Painstaking devotion and love, surrendered to well, self-preservation. This, this is a case where I can I can go along with it because the music is effectively at odds yeah. with yeah. The, the lyric content. The person who probably was aware of both is Martin Hannett. Yeah. So you're getting um, him, and possibly he would even encourage the disparity. 
So I, I know that the vocals were recorded um, separately. You wouldn't want to do live vocals anyway. But um, separately in, in a more severe sense of the band did their stuff. Curtis was there all that time. The whole band was there. But then when it came to the vocals, they kind of went off to the pub. I'm, I don't know that's true, but that's the sense I have, that they weren't really involved in that part of it. They just trusted Ian Curtis to, to write good words to go with his um, vocal melodies. But the other side of that is that, so what was going on then? What, how do you explain Decades and The Eternal and all the other songs which have this um, deep, dark melancholy? I mean, interestingly, I, I don't know where I read this. Apparently they would sit around and chat about really banal things mm. before rehearsing. So there was never any discussion about, well, you know, let's go for this particular sound or let's marry these yeah. lyrics with, with this kind of thing. It just, it, it just seemed um, to come together somewhat mysteriously. And even the coincidences like the cover of the album, mm, mm. apparently chosen long before yeah. Curtis died. Um, and they were only really aware of, uh, you know, how controversial that cover might've been. Um, uh, after Curtis's suicide, oh, just, and they realized just before, oh, shit, this is a two. Yes, just before the album came out. Then what are we going to do about yeah. this? Do we yeah. change it or something? Well, what, what would they do? Just take it, take the photo off, and they decided to go with because that was um, chosen by the whole band, including Curtis. So they just went with it. Uh, yeah, but that's right. Um, the picture sleeve to Lovell Terrace part I described earlier was it, it could be a tombstone because it's like distressed metal. It could look like stone with etched uh, lettering. Joy Division, Lovell Terrace Apart. Uh, so that was there. That was there in the um, in the, 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 the whole spirit around the band. But you did get... This, this is one of those cases... I mean, Atrocity Exhibition, it sounds heavy. So... Um, Curtis would say, okay, what can I do with this? I can make it, I can just go with it. And I can do something that um, meets the severity. Remember, remembering all of these songs were live songs before they were uh, recording. So they were songs pre-Hannett songs. Um, and Isolation was this chirpy little beast. But as soon as you put those, that vocal and those words to it, it just changes character completely. Yeah. Let's go to Passover. This is a crisis I knew had to come Destroying the balance I kept Doubting and settling and turning around Wondering what will come next Is this a role that you wanted to live? I was foolish to ask for so much Without the protection and infancy's guard It all falls apart at Passover exemplifies what I was talking about earlier, that, that sense of space, the sense in which every instrument occupies a different uh, frequency on the spectrum, uh, that really those beautiful reverbs around the drum, mm. there's some sort of subsonic womp that, that I yeah. don't know, it's obviously a synth of some kind that is contributing to the bottom end uh, with the bass. 
and the bass is just fantastic in this song mm. um, just really incredibly um powerful yes and but and there's this massive light between all of these aspects it's the only way i can describe it. and then curtis's vocal is in the middle i'm one of those people who, who doesn't think of people playing when they hear music i think of um landscapes and you know whatever no exactly i'm the same it's one of the reasons i used to enjoy turning the lights out and mm. just being enveloped by the music it wasn't about me visualizing what people were doing on their instruments but rather yeah. being transported to a landscape or yes a, a space that would kind of exist in my imagination but in this case i found the song to be incredibly spooky yes. these lyrics spooked me at the time yeah. and out of all the songs on the album, this was something that I immediately got because, um, and it's something that it, it's a, it speaks to a, an emotion or it speaks to a mood. There's something, you know, I think mood is a better word. It, it evokes a mood of foreboding. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's, we're always waiting for, the next crisis that's going to spin mm. us around and fuck up our lives. That's the nature of existence. You know, life is always in flux and to stay still, you know, to be in stasis is to die. Mm -hmm. So, you know, change is something that we have to reckon with and change is often motivated by like trauma or disaster and it's fucking terrifying. And um, that's what came across to me that there's mm -hmm. this, you know, whoever is singing this song is, you know, it's hanging by a thread, being able so to, to kind of, you know, well, so to speak, yeah, probably bad choice of words there, but well, it's like you're poised on the precipice, you know, you're holding things together, uh, you're managing to get through everyday life, but only just, you know, it's, just well, it's, it's, and the, it's not without, and it's not without trying because uh, this is the gift that I wanted to give. That's, that's the one that haunts me because the, in with all of the, the observations of something being, rendered hopeless by whatever means and i like the fact that the the lyrics are as abstract as that because then it invites you to project what you will over that's that. right but there's that moment where he, he he has tried to change things this is the gift that i wanted to give and yeah. it's meant nothing and then the fear of like what's going to come next like where's this going and uh you know there's also this sense in which like for someone who's young listening to it on the you know in the early years of adulthood, mm. you know, you're struggling with, you know, like lyrics like, you know, is this the role that you wanted to live? Yeah, yeah. I was foolish to ask for so much. Without the protection and infancy's guard, it all falls apart at first yeah, touch. Yeah, yeah. You know, that kind of like the fall from the protections of being young and being a child thrown into this adult world. But, but yes, you're right. He, that That is someone describing a crisis, living in a crisis that is day to day and does not seem to have, as with other lyrics on this album, that does not seem to have an end in sight. Not a, not a good solution anyway. No, that's right. And it's also a strength of his writing style that um, it's kind of opaque, but not mm. so much that um, his general orientation doesn't come through. You know, you can certainly connect mm. with these lyrics, but they're not um literal or um 
no, that's right. easily kind of translated into into prose. There's a sense of mystery that pervades these lyrics that really uh, gives them a lot of power, I think. Um, mm. Yeah, let's move on to Colony. Yeah. <laughs> one of the scariest couplets on the entire album i just have a, a scene of that like as as he lies asleep she takes him in her arms some things i have to do that i don't mean you have that that just scares the hell out of me i don't know what she's doing yeah i don't know whether it's a mother and a child two lovers anything it's not explained this is exactly what you're talking about then yeah, yeah. um it's it's just a nightmarish image and this uh title does actually have some resonance because he uh, he intended it to be not so much a description of um kafka's story in the penal colony but uh his response to it his the way it affected him yeah um and it, it's it's similar to atrocity exhibition uh except for there's a kind of a a um there's another religious overtone god and his wisdom took you by the hand uh, what is it? Um, God in His wisdom made you understand. It's it it sounds like he's describing someone else's religious belief that is compelling them to act to the um, to the damage of others. For my understanding, there's also a sense in which the song seems to make reference to family life and being entrapped in a domestic situation that becomes intolerable. You know, the, the, that section where he goes, you know, I can't see why all these confrontations, I can't see why all these dislocations, no family life just makes me feel uneasy, stood alone here in this colony. Yeah. Um, it, it's an intriguing song also musically because mm. it, seem, it sounds like humans copying a machine. And well, yeah, I, I really like the way the bass and um, the snare pattern kind of like lock in, like they're, they're playing sort of the same rhythmic uh, and line. Isn't it? Yes, and isn't it strange how it's it's the least four four sounding four four song? <laughs> That's right. Because you can count one two three four, yeah. you know, all the way through, but they're not playing four on the floor. And while the distorted guitar is playing exactly the same rhythm as the bass the bass is playing a riff dun, 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 and the the it's not a, not even a bar chord on the guitar it's really just the the effect of that like snarling uh or staccato harshness but see this is what and yeah as he's no so go on oh, oh no and just and the the phrase ends with a little bit of tom before you go back into it it's a very unlovely um song very unlovely arrangement i should say 
you know you're in for a dark time yeah. from the word go. And also very unrock. So the, the drumming. Yeah, very. Yeah. You know, the, the drum- Try dancing to it. Well, apart from that, you know, there's, it, it's like, um, it's machine-like, but it's also kind mm. of orchestral in, in the sense that it's not, the drum pattern isn't really like keeping time. It, it's locked in mm. the bass in a way that um, is just kind of antithetical to the way in which like most rock drummers would approach mm. Mm-hmm. providing a rhythm to a song it, it's it's engaged in something um well you've you've pointed out the uh machine like qualities a, a couple of times and that that's completely apt because um in the penal colony is about a torture machine or, or a punishment machine are you familiar with the story no no it's a really it's a short short story but it, it right. contains all of that in it um right. and it doesn't doesn't not surprise me the slightest bit that uh, it appealed to Ian Curtis so much that he wrote a lyric like this, which doesn't describe the story, but um, it's, as I say, it's, it's, it's like his his response to it was, oh my God, I've got to get this out of my system somehow. Yeah, this is not an easy listen. In, in you know, it's a, it takes you on a adventure and it makes you think, but uh, you know, probably not a album you want to put on. Um, if you want to chill, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, you wouldn't. Well, even even so, I mean, you, you wouldn't choose this one to play as a single track from the album. It works perfectly in the yeah. sequence, and that's the other thing about this album is perfectly yeah. sequenced. Um, but this one is so unlovely, so ugly, and unwelcoming that it's you, you just you really don't want to yeah. go there. You make a really good point there that records like this are sequenced very deliberately mm. and you're right it's like looking at um an uncomfortable confronting sequence in like say a scorsese film yeah you kind of are tempted to look away but there's something that draws you to the screen and it's not pleasant mm. but it shakes you up and mm. uh um that's the great thing about this record, the, the way it kind of like shuffles these different moods. They're all kind of connected in, in, in a way, mm. not directly. But um, I think that's what that, that, that gets to this sense of, you know, when people talk about, well, what does it mean to be cinematic? It's not mm. just about atmosphere and mood. Yes. Sequencing and the way in which these sort of like lyrics bleed into each other mm. uh, do create some kind of, well, it's not a narrative, but it's, it's cohesion. Uh, it's cohesion, and yeah. it, it makes sense that it goes from one to the other because we've we've um, started in with the the Spruker to um, horrific exhibits to yeah. someone who's ashamed of the person he is to a, a description of of despairing failure, and then yeah. this punishment. Um, just thinking of those things, I mean, it's it's not someone, it's not something you're really going to sell to a teeny bopper. But if you were <laughs> interested in 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 uh, a musical uh, experience that was going to take you somewhere, if you should trust it, not at all necessarily pleasant, not necessarily transcendent or uplifting, but something very true, at least to the people who are providing it this is this is one of those this colony is one of those songs like that because they just had the courage of their convictions and just thought you know well for a kickoff it works live 
And it, yeah. you can imagine it, them coming up with that, this impossible, this undanceable song that was just harshness, that it's really like a, that there's not much of a melody to it. It's more like declaiming um, these these symbols, the symbols, these like slogans from this hellish religion. Um, yeah. They just like, well, no, we'll put it on. We'll put it on just especially after something we call Passover. You know, it's there. That, that's part of the courage of this record. So let's go on to another one I like because it, it shouldn't fit but does. A Means to an End. comes to a an end that's right that's the way side one the old side one ends with a very very artificial slowing down it's not like surf rider which is a band slowing down to the last chord it's the producer saying slow 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 down down the machine in fact is the way it's done and this is one of the, the, the few tracks where there's just nothing modal about it because it's chromatic. It just goes semitone, 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 semitone. Yeah. And again, uh, it, it, it has a relation to disco, uh, like in isolation, because Hook's playing uh, like an yeah, octave bass. Yeah, octaves. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I was <laughs> going to say, it, it definitely sounds like some kind of demented, angry disco track. Uh, those octaves really are evocative of... Um, you know what was obviously like a very prevalent uh, form of music back in uh, still at that, that time. time yeah and it was considered kind of the enemy for a lot of people um or people into punk uh, the, this this is again it's it's kind of a dislocation i mean it, unlike isolation there's just nothing happy about this it is one very serious descent they're taking steps down curtis came up with words that perfectly fit this 
this really thumping descent uh, and then goes up to the does this thing of saying I put your, my trust in you in head voice or whatever you want to call that and then goes to the octave for the end of it and then the whole song just gets turned like literally turned down to its like that's it off power's gone yeah there's something really strange about this song and it's it manages to say something perhaps about a friendship or a relationship that is dysfunctional mm. or is winding down or is breaking apart without actually saying any of that in in fact it's the, the mm. lyrics seem to kind of affirm the importance of you know the friendship or the the person or whatever you know it, it's pretty opaque it's very difficult to to pin down which is fine but everything is actually in the tone of the voice mm -hmm. because as you've pointed out when uh we have that refrain i put my trust in you it's it's scary you mm -hmm. know he, he he's changed the tone of his voice he's sort of he's almost on the verge of screaming there's yeah. a sense of anger or disillusionment mm -hmm. um and then the whole thing like you know the machine is slowing down to a final end and a stop um so for me this song has always been i guess a little scary not because of the literal meaning of the words but mm. the way he's kind of injecting emotion mm. and feeling into you know that last part that you played yeah you know where where there's that change and it's like this you know it's like i put my fucking trust in yep. you trust in who in god in, in in the world in what that that is the thing he curtis doesn't strike me as as, as being at all religious but he does seem to be someone who's aware of religiosity and yeah. its effect on culture and on psychology and on people and i think he if if anything he's using that as a model for someone who's simply talking about trust like it's it would be that literal similar yeah. to the the song candidate on um unknown pleasures uh, yeah. playing by your rules that's all that we know the, the way he's yelling I put my trust in you yeah. is is angry isn't it it is angry and I wonder what that anger is directed uh, hmm. towards because it seems to me that the song could possibly be a song about music he was a music fan he put a lot of faith in presumably the power of music you know dance 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 to the radio and yeah. uh, he Hook writes about just how learned uh Curtis was in mm. uh, comparison to the other members of the band. You know, like Hook had never heard of The Doors. Uh, mm -hmm. It was Curtis who turned That's on right, the members yeah. of the band to The Doors and The Velvet Underground, uh, the Iggy rock. and The Stooges. Yeah. He knew all of this stuff. And mm. also he was into art film. He was, you know, they Hook talks um, about, you know, the relationship that Curtis had with uh, the Belgian journalist and this guy going out with this sophisticated foreign woman and going off to art galleries while these lads were sort of like drinking and lighting farts and <laughs> whatever else they were doing you know but so when I read these lines like I always looked to you I put my trust in you mm -hmm. putting your trust in something like art or something culture? like music and mm -hmm. a culture and it's not enough you know yes so. something isn't enough uh yeah 
and he finds that even though he could my impression is that like committed still I turn to go it's like um, he could choose to live a certain way he could choose to just put some sort of buffer emotional buffer between what he's suspecting is the is futility perhaps and the, a kind of false life so we, we come to the end of the first side and it's it's kind of the harshest um, bump is over now uh, the rest of it is is curiously uh, merciful is the wrong word but there's, there's something more benign about the rest of the album and we start with uh, heart and soul strikes me about this song is the long opening mm. it's like 50 seconds or something before yeah. the vocal comes in so there's this long build-up and beautiful sound of that synth bass mm. uh, i think it's a uh, i think perhaps there's a bass line being played on a synthesizer doubled with whatever bass hookers play yeah. he sometimes played like a six string bass that's I think, right in some tracks um but i love that and and mm. you know like it's sort of like that kind of like long setup really creates the sense of atmosphere. Mm. And at about like 30 seconds in, like the synth kind of just slides in yeah, there. Eerie. So beautiful. And it's just like something's building. Mm. And I'm not sure whether it was this song. Apparently there was a song that Joy Division used to do live that Curtis would um, suss out the audience. Uh, or Dead Souls. He, Oh, did so. But it's the right. same kind right. of thing because it has, yeah. it plays through something like two verses and two choruses without a word being sung. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. But this is, this is kind of the successor in that it does spend all that time. It's a, as you say, like it's, it's about a minute and it's, a, it's only a six minute song. Um, and you get this very understated groove happening. And it's, it is a groove, it's a hard, um, one to keep up as we were kind of talking about what was on because what Morris is doing he's not completing the bar and with his drum kit he's putting this little triplet that sometimes is just a this two snare mm. hits and sometimes three and sometimes he just kind of flubs it mm. but he keeps it up like a machine but nevertheless as you pointed out there's no doubt that it's a human drummer yes yeah and, it, and it's those little variations in tempo that mm -hmm. uh you know because I think that push and pull um, is really important in the way a band sounds. Mainly what you notice is the snare over that big, deep rhythmic bass. And then, as you say, the synthesizer very eerily sort of just appear now and then at some odd 
minus six or something like that over the I haven't worked it out and the guitar is clean as a whistle but it's uh, it's very reverby and it's really buried it's right underneath everything and that builds up this is you know like at the end we were listening to that and it's it's like this thing it takes over the rest of the song while still being in the background and we haven't even got to Curtis's vocal yet which is really it's, it's like a mumble what do you make of that because it's it's the opposite of something like atrocity exhibition where he's right out the front and it's it's bold and he's really calling it but here you have to really lean in and listen you do and um there is a i don't know this is one of the tracks that really i think makes good on yes. that comparison to someone like sinatra there is a sense of him um almost crooning in in this song um there's a smoothness to the vocal i think i'm not i'm not sure uh maybe it's just because it's buried a little bit it's so subdued i didn't get it and when that just sends an alarm bell with me so i, I tend to have to um concentrate on something like that because I, I i i trust my uh distaste of things enough to ask whether there's a a good reason for that in the old um ritual you turned the record over from that big thumping anger to this quiet thing it struck me as something that was resolved something that was just being described exactly mm -hmm. and that's the the the, the the mood between side one and two is very distinct. Mm. The rage and the anger uh, on side one, mm -hmm. and then resignation is side two, and the thing just winds down. Yes. Let's go to the ominously named 24 hours. So this is Wow, um, this one it's, it's it's one of the most strongly modal of all of the the songs on this album. So so much so that uh, I can imagine this being in Latin and sung by Gregor, like monks, <laughs> especially yeah. the da 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 da. Um, there are two different uh, sections that get repeated. One's a, the slurred uh, riff where Hook's playing the melodic line, and then it speeds up um, with uh attendant intensity in the lyrics would you agree with that 
Yeah, uh, and it's interesting that basically, you know, there are what, like five verses to this song. So mm -hmm. it's just this repetition of a cycle. But what causes interest is tempo. And interestingly, mm -hmm. time is becoming, it's becoming apparent to me that this album is full of references to time, this song, 24 hours, and then mm -hmm. we've got, uh, you know, the eternal and decades, yeah. you know, it's... That's uh, the last three songs. That's right. And um, so there's this kind of interesting engagement with the, the, the nature of uh, like time, mm -hmm. uh, which is explored like lyrically and musically, yeah. particularly in this song. This song almost, um, it breaks the, the mood of side two a little bit. You know, it's almost it's like rockier. It's, it's rockier. It's mm. like one last kind of. Uh, yes, yeah. It's, it's yeah. almost. It's it's not hopeful, but there's a there's an energy to it that um, is almost like defiant. Yeah, and in the context of what this song seems to be about, it, it it's it's like uh, a light bulb goes off, a realization. You know, so this is permanence. Mm -hmm. uh, so this is what you know, love gone wrong is like. There's a, a connection, I think, between what Curtis is expressing here and, and what he does so brilliantly and eloquently in Love Will Tear Us Apart. Yeah, well, Love Will Tear Us Apart is, is one of the most, I think, perfect pop songs ever written. Just that, that phrase, there's a taste in my mouth, and as desperation takes on, that, that just speaks volumes. Like the phrase here, what once was innocence turned on its side, like yeah. a big loping ship about to sink. Yeah, and or someone just resigned, and they're 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 turning away. Um, it's just a few words, but it's such an evocative and emotive uh, observation. Something is it's it's not dying, it's not dead, it's just turned on its side. It's, it's lost interest. It's it's resigned. Yeah, and haven't we all felt that in relationships that have gone on for too long? It's the point yeah. at which you realise, yeah, this it's what do I really value about this? And am yeah. I going to be the one that's going to say, you know? Yeah. And there's a sense in which, you know, when you get into a relation, I mean, he got married. He was presumably off the belief that the relationship was permanent. It would last mm. for, you know, yeah. until death <laughs> do your part or whatever the, the phrase is. The next track, The Eternal, is my favourite track on the album. Absolutely stunning. This. Mm -hmm. Dream. 
So, your favourite track on the album? Yes, it's my favourite track. Um, not just on the album, but one of my favourite tracks of all time. Okay. I just find this song incredibly chilling, moving. And we were talking about how Closer is a cinematic album, the way mm. in which it kind of enables the listener to play movies in their mind. And yeah. this is incredibly evocative. What I, do you I see? always... Well, I see a funeral, <laughs> you know, this, it's a sort of like black and white. I don't know. I see snow. Okay. It's this sort of, um, I don't know, like I've always thought that this song might just be about Curtis imagining his own death. Okay. Um, I mean, you, before I go on to talk about how I, I read this song, what were you saying about um, the song being about a specific Ah, I would have to... This is Peter, later, doing the edit. Sorry about the record scratch sound effect, it's just that sometimes convention and humour can coincide and compel. Glenn and I had a discussion about the lyric of this song, but it was based on a misheard word, a single syllable that yet led us way off the compass. I knew there was a particular story about the song's inspiration, but couldn't locate it at the time of the recording. I'll put a link into the blog post about this episode, but the gist of it is this. Ian Curtis lived on the same street as a boy with Down syndrome who was confined to the house and a small area outside of it. Curtis later returned to his old address and saw the boy as an adult living in the same confined conditions. The song lyric, at least the second verse, is a description of this. Now back to the podcast. But I don't find this uh, a particularly sad song. Oh, it, it, it's not. It, you know what, Peter? It reminds me a lot of uh, Nick Drake's song uh, From the Morning, In the Morning. Uh, do you know the, the last song on Pink Moon? And now we rise from the ground See she flies She is everywhere See she flies All around Wow, that is lovely Yeah, it's a brilliant song and it has that same kind of like elemental set of references to um, you know, uh, death and rebirth or, um, yeah. or, or, or some sort of overwhelming uh sense of peace mm -hmm. and i think that's what happens in um this song too that last image of watching the trees and leaves as they fall um extraordinarily beautiful but we are moving on now to my favorite track on the album which is decades Weary inside, now our hearts lost forever. Can't replace the fear or the thrill of the chase. These rituals showed up the door for our wanderings. Open and shut. And slammed in our face Decades 
it's a beautiful track, incredibly melodic. And one of the things that strikes me immediately mm -hmm. about that track is the layering of the keyboards. Mm -hmm. uh, it's just beautiful. I love, I, I'm not sure what that synthesizer is, but I'd love to be able to emulate that sound. They could have just kept it going for another hour as far as I'm concerned. It's, yeah, you just wanted to keep going. But, and that's part of it because uh, music like that is designed to make you want that, to long for it because it's a very longing kind of song and it's it's elegiac yeah. um talking about the young man weight on the shoulders i don't think that uh needs even to be the young man of military service it could be any young people where in ian curtis's mind as the lyricist was just thinking of uh people who have come through the youth and realized that it's just a burden it's it's just going to be more of this and he's he's uncompromising the, the we knocked on the doors of hell's darker chamber yeah. pushed to the limit we dragged ourselves in a lot of people uh get to i don't know 18 and in their darker moments they will feel exactly the same way simply from having lived through that to go to the to get to the point yeah. of adulthood how does this strike you this song yeah. by lyrics well, I, I really like the sense of detachment in this song. It's um, it's interesting that you have lines like, watch from the wings as the scenes were replaying, we saw ourselves now as, as we never had seen. Um, another motif that comes through when you look at the lyrics in this album is that, you know, the, the specular, uh, we start off with the atrocity exhibition being invited to see these horrors. We end with, mm -hmm. uh, this sense of detachment, even in the last track, as I said, it, it was for me, um, this kind of uh, omniscient perspective, looking down on something. And in this song too, there's this kind of contemplative sense of detachment here, uh, a summing up uh, of sorts. Um, and just that kind of like slow, peaceful fade up. Musically, I love this song musically because the uh, this track, I should say, because it's production as, as well as arrangement, as well as songwriting. It starts with that clapping, that odd sort of clapping uh, figure. Yeah. And the bass, again, about 10 times, 10 stories higher than it is in the rest of the song. It's just this enormous central thing. And then these, these very fluid, rich keyboard chords uh, coming in with that flowing... Uh, I think they're eight figures, eight notes, uh, quaver figures on D minor and C, and it just washes. Yeah, yeah. No, it, it's stunning. It's it's a it's a great move, I think, musically. Um, you know, it's almost like throwing a a rock into a a pond, and there's this mm -hmm. sort of it, it changes the um, uh, the surface of the pond immediately, and these things just sort of like you know, waves radiate out and uh, yeah. move you into another state. Uh, fantastic song. You know, the uh, interesting thing about Curtis as a figure is like when you listen to this album and you uh, engage with the sentiments and the emotions and the moods, you can't help but think, well, this guy must have been uh, incredibly bleak and depressed and of course he committed suicide so that that in some ways vindicates that mm. particular view but there's mm. a 
passage I just want to read from Peter Hook's book, uh, and it relates okay. to what I was saying earlier about the band not really being aware of what this album was about and what these lyrics were about. And Hook writes, um, people turn around to you and say, God, you've been hearing these lyrics for weeks. Why didn't you realize he was so bad? You hadn't. He wasn't slumped in the corner with a lone fiddle in the background. He was fucking going for it. I suppose that's the contradiction. On the one hand, he was ill and vulnerable. On the other, he was a screaming rock god. That's what was confusing. As Teardrop Explodes sang in the Great Dominions, we talked for hours. Joy Division in this album are the kind of band and statement that generate discussion as if they weren't content to just be listened to while you're doing the housework. It goes well beyond the cultism that early fans developed and into a more general applicability, especially as those fans like I was age and better recognize fears and issues that these songs address. And this from a group of northern pub crawlers barely into their 20s. But the thing about Closer is its durability. In July of this year, the record turned 40. And while it does reveal the era of its birth, it plays as strongly now as it did in 1980. With its tales of atrocities for pleasure, life and death decisions, powerless failure and so on set to music that ranges from grinding anger to fragile elegiac beauty, few classic albums could better accompany the life of the year 2020. You don't have to be a teenage depressive to listen to this record, and it doesn't help. You just need to be aware of the world beyond the door today. But as 2020 closes with some significant uplifting moments, will not end on more dark days, but a hopeful statement from one of the last compositions to bear the credit, Joy Division. Please have a pleasantly uneventful and blissfully ordinary New Year.
domesticate them. I also remember a member of Australian Crawl dismissing Joy Division by saying they can't really play. Uh, you know, people say that they're modal, but really they're just shit. <laughs> and I thought, really? <laughs> well, that's being on the right side of history. 